Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we continue our study through David's life, we're going to come to the next great episode in his life. It's going to be focused on this particular chapter in 2 Samuel. There is a, 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 essentially a repeat of the events of 2, Sam, of 2 Samuel chapter 7 over in uh, uh, the book of 1 Chronicles. And we'll reference, we'll kind of bounce back and forth between the two um, throughout our study. But we'll, we'll start here. Now, last week when we left David's story, he had been anointed king over all of Israel, not just the, the tribe of Judah. He's, he's now, uh, by way of the people, the chosen king, not just by God. And he has to make some moves, some initial moves, when he becomes king. And we looked at the three big moves he made as he took up the throne. The first move was to relocate his capital to Jerusalem. Up to this point, Jerusalem had not been the capital of the Israelite empire. But David went and conquered the city of Jerusalem, conquered the Jebusites who resided there, and set up his home base in the city of Jerusalem. Henceforth, it became known as the city of David for that reason. So his first move was to move his capital to Jerusalem. The, th the second thing we saw back in 2 Samuel chapter 5 was that he removed the Philistines from the land. In particular, there was this valley, the Valley of Rephaim, where the, the Philistines, in the aftermath of Saul's death, they kind of took up residence throughout Israel, but upon hearing that David had been crowned king, they particularly kind of went and embedded themselves in the Valley of Rephaim because it was on the door, on, on the welcome mat, basically, of Jerusalem. It was right outside the city walls. That valley spread um, westward from Jerusalem towards the coast. And what David ended up having to do in the last half of 2 Samuel chapter 5 is twice go to battle against those Philistines and drive them out of the land where they were not supposed to be. And he was successful in doing that because he sought the Lord's guidance and the Lord was with him. And so the second move he had to make was to remove the Philistines. And then the third move he made covered the extent of 2 Samuel chapter 6, and that was to relocate the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. Since the days of... Saul, even early, even before Saul, I should say, the Ark of the Covenant had been located in Kirith-Jerim because it had been abducted by the Philistines during a battle. And when the Philistines got tired of dealing with the consequences of holding on to the Ark that they were not allowed to have, they shifted off to Kirith-Jerim and it had been uh, remained in the house of Abinadab for a long period of time. And David now wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the next phase of David's reign comes into view. Now, I want you to read with me the first couple of verses because it gives connections to what we just, the survey I just gave from the events of chapter 5 and 6. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. When you look at these two verses, you see it connecting back to the events that unfolded for the two chapters prior. We start off with the phrase, now when the king lived in his house. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David takes over Jerusalem, as we talked about. He conquers Jerusalem. He sets that up as his capital city. And we find out a detail we didn't spend any time with last week, but the king of Tyre... I'm sorry, uh, Hiram, I believe was his name, the king of Tyre, provided David with cedar trees, with carpenters, with masons, to build him a house. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 11 tells us that. So we have David taking over Jerusalem and then getting a, a palace built for himself there. And this verse is doing a call back to that. But not only did David build him a house in Jerusalem, but David experienced peace. We just talked about the fact that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he drove all the Philistines out of the land. 
He was getting rest from his enemies for once in his life. I mean, it's not going to remain, but he has a period of peace, and we have reference here in the first verse to the fact that God had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. But something was missing. David felt that. Because he knew the ark... The ark didn't have a permanent home. He had brought it over from Kiriath-Jerim, but all he had done is erected a new tent for it to be in. He's got this house built out of cedars, and the Ark of the Covenant is under a tent. And that bothers David. David wanted to build a permanent facility to house the Ark of the Covenant. And that is a really commendable endeavor. In fact, there are two main reasons it's worth commending David for this. Number one, his motivation was commendable. David recognized that it was out of balance for him to have a palace, for him a mere mortal, for him the subject of God, for him a servant of the Lord, to have a palace. And for the Lord, via his, his uh, object that represented his presence on this earth, to have a tent. God, he felt, deserved so much more than that. God deserved a better dwelling place, he felt, than he did. See, his motivation is incredibly commendable. It may even be that David saw in his conquest of Jerusalem and his successful relocation of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the fulfillment of something God had said way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, God had said, When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Did you notice in this statement, this statement from Mosaic Law, this statement from years earlier, that God said, when he gives you rest from all your enemies. And what had we just read at the start of chapter 7? That David had rest from all his enemies. It may be that David's looking around going, hey, that rest God promised, it's arrived. So it's time for God's location to be chosen. Now, it all, you could argue that David is usurping God and choosing the location for him. I don't think that's the case. I think David is the agent of God to move that process along because God is never upset with David for choosing, or let me rephrase it, God is never upset with David for wanting to build him a temple. God is never, never punishes, never criticizes, never condemns David for this objective he has. So David's motivation is commendable, and it seems to fit right alongside his continued effort to bring to fruition God's will based on Mosaic law. The other thing we should notice is that David's strategy was commendable. See, instead of just launching into this project, David employed a proven strategy for success. He sought God's approval first. I'm kind of in a little conundrum at my house right now. It's, it's you know, time for landscaping to take place. I've got a bunch of flower beds. I, the, the one downside of my house is when they built it, they, for whatever reason, wanted flower beds everywhere. And with flower beds, when you live in an HOA environment, that means you've got to redo the flower beds. I'm converting from the tried and true pine straw method to mulching this year just because I like the look of it better. So I went out and bought 100 bags of mulch because that's how many flower beds I've got. I actually did the math on this one. Now, I'm a preacher, so I could have got it wrong. I could have overestimated very easily, but I couldn't get 100 bags of mulch only for Sarah to point out that our HOA has strict policies about the color of the mulch. 
and I told her very confidently, I, I, I know, and I did know that we have that strict policy, but I thought I'd chosen the right one because our, I'm choosing it based on the neighbors, what they had. Come to find out they got special approval for that color, and I'd gotten the wrong color. So I've got 100 bags of mulch at my house. That's the wrong color for the HOA rules that I now have to go return and replace. Say what? Nope. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'd, I didn't consult the authority ahead of time. I didn't go look at the documents to verify that I was doing the right thing. David did, though. You notice that in the text? David asked somebody. He spoke, or let me rephrase that, he made an observation about God dwelling in a tent while he dwelled in a palace. He made that observation to someone important. To someone we haven't been introduced to until now. To a guy named Nathan. Nathan pops into the story out of the blue. We've never heard of him before. But Nathan, we're told, is a prophet. Now, I found that interesting because in the chronology of the Bible up to this point, there haven't been that many prophets identified. Let's have a little fun. Can you name the prophet's that have thus far, from Genesis to 2 Samuel, been mentioned specifically in the text of Scripture. I'll give you a hint. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And two of them are not male, so they're technically prophetesses. Anybody name the prophetesses? Deborah was one. There haven't been that many women in Scripture yet. The other one's Miriam. Specifically identified in the text of Scripture as prophetesses. Now, we're not going down that rabbit hole, so don't worry. What about the other six? Identified as prophets in the text. Abraham was one. Moses, another. Aaron, a third. Can anybody name another one? I heard, mum, I heard murmurings. Eli is never identified as one in the text of Scripture, but Samuel is. Aside from that, you're going to deal with an unnamed guy in Judges chapter 6, as well as on two occasions in the book of Judges, uh, that's in the book of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 19, where a group of prophets are referred to, though not identified. And in each instance, you have somehow, uh, miraculously, Saul getting caught up with that group and prophesying himself. He's never called a prophet. He's just said that in those moments, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and chapter 19, he prophesied in a unique way, causing people to ask, is he one of the prophets? But never confirming that he was. And aside from that, you have one other guy named Gad who appears on the scene in the story of David beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and he was a prophet affiliated with David. At this point in the story, we don't, I don't think we hear much about Gad anymore. Instead, we start hearing about Nathan. And Nathan becomes very important in David's life because he is the prophet with whom David interacts throughout his reign as king. Most notably, he's going to appear in the Bathsheba account as the one who helps confront David. But one other thing to know about Nathan is he actually is a he gets attributed with the recording of David's story and reign in Scripture, not so much associated with specifically with one of the texts uh, or one of the books of the Bible we have, but he is identified as one of the individuals who compiled the history of David, the history of the monarchy, the United Kingdom, that sort of thing. But the most important thing to know about Nathan is he is a prophet. That means that he is an agent through whom God communicates messages to people. Now, prophets can have the ability to be predictive, but to be a prophet doesn't mean you have to be able to predict the future. A prophet is just someone who communicates a message from God. And so David here 
was careful not to start constructing right away. Instead, he takes the time to consult with someone who can communicate the will of God. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3, Nathan says to David, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This means that David's strategy for, for going about the construction of the temple was done right. It was done correctly. He is taking the necessary steps to get approval before he acts. And, and the big takeaway right now for us in these first three verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God considered David's desire and David's strategy to be commendable. In fact, if you'll turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, particularly verses 7 through 9, we read about the dedication of the temple after it's finally constructed. And it's not David who constructed it, it's Solomon, his son. And Solomon reflected on David's desire to build that temple, to build a house for God. And look at what he said in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 7 through 9. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. God looked at David's objective and said, that's commendable. But it turns out that God ultimately rejected David's plan to build a temple. And according to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, that's the alternative version of the story that we have in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 4, we read, But that same night that David spoke to Nathan, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that David consults with the prophet to get approval to build? The prophet says, go, the Lord is with you. And then that night, the prophet gets a different message. Now, that has caused at least one scholar I read contend that Nathan's original approval was conducted without consulting God. And while that might be possible, I don't necessarily believe it has to be necessary. Maybe what happened here is similar to what happened to Balaam. Now, Balaam is hired to pronounce oracles for Balak, for a non-Israelite king. And initially, God tells Balaam, you can't go. But then all of a sudden, God comes to Balaam and says, you can go, but you have to say what I tell you to say. And then on the way, after receiving approval from God to go to this king, Balaam is almost killed by an angel he can't see, but his donkey can. God gave him approval to go, and then God tried to kill him. Because something caused God to change his mind. Is it possible that a scenario like that plays out here? Possible, yes. Definite, no, but possible. It's possible that Nathan assumed that it was okay, but did not technically consult God, and therefore he got a message from the Lord of the night. Or it's possible God changed his mind. We don't know why that happened, but it did. The bigger question is, why is David a man after God's own heart, not allowed to build the temple. Does that not just fascinate you? The man who is given this title, who is so revered by the Lord throughout Scripture, is not commissioned to build the temple. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, as well as 1 Chronicles chapter 17, the reason given as to why David was not authorized to build a temple is because God is not needy. That's the Kyle Rye summarized version. Look at what 
God initially told Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 through 7. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's message initially to Nathan is, I've never had a house. I've never asked for a house. I don't need a house. That's his initial response. And when you really listen to that response, it has more to do with God's relationship with mankind than it does God's relationship with David. It's God's way of saying, I don't need to be served by you. That's a message that's repeated throughout Scripture. You can go over to Acts chapter 17, in verse 24 and 25, and Paul is speaking to the Athenian philosophers in the Areopagus after noticing all of their religious artifacts throughout the city, all of their idols, all of their temples. And he says to that group, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's message was that the true God doesn't live in one location, and the true God doesn't need you to serve him. In fact, if you go look at the dedication of the temple by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, Solomon in his prayer that day actually utters these words. He says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Even Solomon acknowledged when he dedicated the temple that the temple is not fit for God. It's not big enough to contain God. God is too big for mankind. So when we look at this, we, we got to think that what God's ultimately saying when he speaks through Nathan is, I don't need a house. I don't have that kind of requirement. In fact, you may recall a few months ago in, in a sermon series I was doing called Beginnings when we were working our way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We got to Genesis chapter 11, the building of the Tower of Babel. And I talked about ziggurats, the pyramid-type structures that you can find over in uh, Mesopotamia, you can find in the Middle East. And those structures were built by the ancient people for the purpose of creating a stairway between heaven and earth so that the gods, little g-gods that they worshipped, could descend down here to get their offerings and go back up. They were structures that said something about deity. They communicated the idea that, that deity was not much more than a human. Because they had needs, they needed to be fed, and they had to move in human transit modes. And so there's a sense in which the Tower of Babel kind of was blasphemous. Because it was associated by those builders with the God of the world, but it's saying we're limiting him to this space. And so, what we need to understand is that God is reiterating, I don't need a house. I created everything. I don't need this space. And that's his first reason for not letting David build the temple. But that's very general. That's not specific to David. That's general to all of mankind. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 17, the story, the, the chapters that reveal this series of events to us in these conversations that God has to David via Nathan and then David's uh, prayer in return, 
neither one of those chapters really expound on why God wouldn't let David do it. But there are a couple of statements in Scripture that seem to give other information. So, for instance, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 5. Because there's a statement here that seems to indicate that one reason David was not allowed to build the temple was because he was too busy. I know that sounds silly, but since 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 3 says, You know that David my father, this is Solomon speaking, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Solomon's statement seems to suggest, as one author said, that David was too busy waging war with Israel's enemies to undertake a major construction project, and his desire to build the temple during a time of peace was premature and naive. Think about the, the parts of David's life we haven't even got to yet. If you scan ahead, chapters 8 and 9, and I believe chapter 10, all relate battles David's going to be involved in, wars he's going to fight. And in, 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 in his future, we will eventually get to this. He's going to have one of his own sons rebel against him and drive him out of his capital city and try to take the kingdom from him. David is not a man who got to enjoy peace for long periods of time as a king. Solomon will. And that seems to be alluded to here in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 3 that that's one of the reasons David wasn't allowed is because David was always at war. And with that comes the second reason we can find in Scripture that David was not allowed to build the temple, and that's because he was too bloody. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 3. This actually is David speaking. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 3 David said, God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. So David is saying, God's explanation to me as to why I couldn't build the temple is because I shed too much blood. I'm a man of war, and therefore he didn't allow me to build. So God had, did have reason to reject David as his temple builder. And you can't help but look at this story, look at these series of events, and think, wow, there have been times in my life where I've asked God for something and I've felt rejected. I've petitioned God And the answer that came back was not the answer I was hoping for. And you can imagine that there was some degree of disappointment for David when this desire was rejected. Because rejection always comes with disappointment, doesn't it? I'm certain at some point in our lives, all of us have been rejected for something Maybe we were rejected for a job. Maybe we were rejected by a college we wanted to get into. Maybe we were rejected by a person we wanted to date. Maybe we were rejected uh, by the bank for a loan. Who knows what? I'm certain all of us have faced rejection at some point in time. If you haven't, don't tell us because we'll just be mad at you. But it's how David handles rejection on this scale That is another moment where you realize why he's a man after God's own heart. God rejected David's temple building plan, but but David handled it perfectly. Because I think David understood a couple of things, and that's what I want to focus the remainder of our time on. Things we can learn from God's rejection and David's acceptance. The first thing I want you to consider is that we can learn from this event that God's rejection of our request is not equivalent to a rejection of us. God may say no to some prayers we offer, but that doesn't mean he rejects us. See, God rejected David's temple-building request, but he didn't reject David. 
David didn't stop being king because he wanted to build a temple and God said no. In fact, nowhere in the text of Scripture do we learn that God said no to David because of some sin in David's life. We haven't even got to Bathsheba yet. So this isn't because of the Bathsheba episode. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that God said no to David's request because David needed to be disciplined. There's an infamous story towards the end of David's life where he conducts a census and he wasn't supposed to. That wasn't authorized. That was actually contrary to Mosaic law. And God had to discipline him some way. So God gave him a few options and said, you get to pick which one of these punishments will be inflicted upon you and, your pe and, and the people. And it was all so that David would be disciplined. But that happens much later. This has nothing to do with David needing to be disciplined. And nowhere in the text of Scripture do we learn that God said no because David had some ulterior self-serving motive. We've already seen a passage where God said, you do well in wanting to do this. And nowhere in the text of Scripture is David's request identified as something that was sinful and morally wrong. It all comes down to God just having a different plan. And so while rejecting David's plan, God simultaneously does something else to benefit David. He re redirects David's focus. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Because after God made it known that David would not be allowed to build the temple, he then had Nathan say this to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What is David wanting to make for the Lord? A house. But God said no to that, but he turns around and offers this. The Lord declares to you that he, the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. After God says no, he turns around and tells David, I've got something better for you. I'm going to make your house great. Your son shall sit on this throne, unlike the situation with Saul where I had to take the throne away from his family. And it will be a perpetual throne. There will always be a descendant of yours on this throne because you've been faithful to me. All of these wonderful blessings, the promise of a well-known name, the promise of a successful reign, the promise of a royal dynasty, all of this are given in place of David's desire to build the temple. And he's even told that his descendant will be the one who does finally bring that temple to fruition. So rather than David's building a house, a physical structure for God. God builds a house, a dynasty for David. God took David's desire, commended it, rejected it, and then redirected it 
to something else because it just wasn't part of his plan right now. The lesson for us to gain from David's experience is that people after God's own heart should trust God even when he rejects their requests because we know he knows best. Realize this. Even the Son of God received a no when he prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, God said no. If Jesus, if Jesus can hear a no from God the Father, then who are we to think we won't hear a no in our lives too? And if Jesus can be okay with a no from God the Father, then who are we to not be okay when God gives us a no? It was Jesus who, after praying, removed this cup from me, then turned around and said, not my will, but yours be done. And that wasn't just the attitude of Jesus in that moment. He's the one who taught his disciples to pray back in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the mindset of a man or a woman after God's own heart. It's the mindset that always submits to the will of the Father because he or she understands that the Father knows best. And so sometimes God says no because our will doesn't line up with his. Our prayer doesn't fit with what he's trying to accomplish or what he's got planned. But sometimes God says no simply because he wants to redirect us like he does David here. And you know, David's not the only one who this happens to. The Apostle Paul experienced that kind of redirection during one of his missionary campaigns. In Acts chapter 16, between verse 6 and 10, we find out that Paul wanted to continue his mission work in Asia, but he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He then tried to go to Bithynia, but once again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. On two different occasions, Paul had a missionary effort stalled by God. Paul tried to go that way, and God said no. He then tried to go that way, and God said no. His goal was commendable. He wanted to spread the gospel wherever he could, and he was choosing locations that had not been reached yet. But God said no. And it's all because God had another plan. God was ready for his gospel to go to Europe. And so while spending the night in Troas, Paul had a dream involving a man from Macedonia, and he concluded that God had called him and his companions to preach the gospel there. Paul eventually took the gospel to Asia. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. And according to uninspired church history, Peter later took the gospel into the region known as Bithynia that Paul wasn't allowed to go to either. See, God shut some doors. God said no in some instances, even to the Apostle Paul. But it was all because God had a bigger and better plan. There are going to be times that God is going to give us a rejection. And we should be okay with that because we know that His will is better. David's son Solomon, the one who would build the temple, he wrote these words in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The rejection of our requests is not a rejection of us. It's just an indicator that God has a different plan. David modeled that for us, and from him we learn that rejection 
will happen. And we need to trust the Father. But we also learn from this episode that God wants us to support His will regardless of our role. One of the key issues this text really raises is when David's going to hear rejection, how's he going to respond to it? Is he going to respond like Saul and fight against it and try to do his own thing? Remember, Saul hears he's rejected as king, and what does he spend the rest of his life doing? Trying to kill anyone who would take his throne. Instead of serving the Lord, instead of trying to uh, be one with God from that point forward, he spends the rest of his time trying to kill anybody that could be a threat to him. God re- Saul re- re- was rejected by God, and in turn, Saul rejected God. David's facing the similar dilemma. He's been rejected by God. Will he, in turn, reject God or submit to God? That's the key issue here. But notice, David, <laughs> David's not despondent or bitter, or embarrassed, or even angry. Look at how he responds. It starts in verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It starts with the text telling us that he went in and sat before the Lord. He's rejected, and how does he respond? He goes into a room privately and sits down with the Lord. In other words, he went to pray. And here's the prayer he prayed there beginning in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David begins his prayer by humbly acknowledging his unworthiness, by glorifying God's greatness. He recognized that he didn't deserve all that God had done or all that God was promising. And that humble recognition led him to praise God. And look at how that praise continues, beginning in verse 22 through verse 24. You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Instead of sitting here complaining, instead of shouting his anger at not getting to do what he wanted to do, instead of getting his, grabbing his ball and going home, David just sits down and says, God, you are awesome. And you've done all this great stuff for me. You've done all this great stuff for your people. Who am I to question your decisions? And now notice how David closed his prayer. Verse 25 through 29. And I forgot to change the verses on the screen. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David, here's God's rejection, here's God's blessing, and all he he can say is, Amen. All he can say is, 
do what you say you're going to do. I'm not going to be upset that I don't get to build a temple. I'm just going to be grateful that your mercy is shown to me. David has the right perspective. He hears a no, but he's able to handle God's no. All because he recognizes who God is. And so when David is told, when David is rejected, the first thing he, he does is pray. He realizes that maybe his role isn't to build the temple. Maybe it's just to be somebody who prays. But David takes a step beyond that. He also starts preparing. David learned that he would not be the one to build a temple for God, but that did not mean that he could not start making preparations for his son who will build the temple because God had specifically said his descendant would be the one to do this. And it's in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 that God said to Nathan, to David via Nathan, it's not you who will build me a house to dwell in. But look at what David starts doing five chapters after that. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stonecutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails and, the doors for, of, uh, and, and for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing. And cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrenians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. David doesn't get to build the temple. But you know what David does do? He goes, I'm going to set my son up for success. I'm going to go ahead and pick the location where this needs to be built. I'm going to go ahead and hire the workers that are going to be needed to build the temple. I'm going to go ahead and stock up on the supplies that will be necessary for construction. David made all the preparations for the temple on Solomon's behalf. David wasn't worried about who received the glory for building the temple. He wasn't worried about whether or not it's going to be referred to as David's temple or Solomon's temple. He was only concerned about making sure it was done right. And so he made provisions so his son could succeed. And David supported God's plan by supporting the one who would fulfill it. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Something we can learn from David in this moment is that people after God's own heart are those who are ready and willing to serve him in whatever capacity he desires. God doesn't call everybody to build temples. God doesn't call everybody to do the same assignment. Some do the big jobs, some do the little jobs. Some do the jobs out front, some do the jobs behind the scenes. All of God's people are given a task, but not all of God's people are given the same task. All of God's people are given a skill set, but not all of God's people are given the same skill set. All of God's children are given responsibility, but not all of God's children are given the same responsibility. David was a great king, a courageous warrior, and perfectly suited to be the leader that shepherded God's people back to his fold. David's success in these areas did not necessarily equate to greatness in the area of construction. But just because you're not the man or the woman for a specific job doesn't mean there's no part for you to play. We need to recognize that some people are going to have the assignments that get attention. Some people are going to have the assignments that are the big deal jobs. Some people are going to be out front. Some people are going to be the face. 
of God's kingdom in certain respects. But that doesn't mean they're more valuable than you. That doesn't mean because somebody has a great singing voice, they're a more useful tool in God's kingdom than you. That because someone is an excellent teacher, that they're more useful in God's kingdom than you. That because someone has more money and can give greater contributions, that they're more important in the kingdom than you. Our attitude should be the same as Isaiah, who in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he responded, Here am I, send me. In other words, Isaiah volunteered. He possessed a mindset of readiness and willingness when it came to kingdom work. And just like David, it didn't matter what role he needed to fulfill. To fulfill. It only mattered that he was serving his God. David's rejection of building the temple and his turnaround to become the chief supporter of its future completion reminds us that it doesn't matter what job we do as long as God's getting the glory. We need to approach our service in the kingdom with that same attitude. Here am I, send me. This evening we analyze the situation in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with the rejection of building the temple in hopes that it speaks to us, helps us understand and accept when our prayers don't turn out the way we want them to, don't get answered the way we want them to, but also hopefully it helps us appreciate the various roles we can play in the kingdom of God, regardless of how much attention they get. So let's close in a word of prayer. God, our prayer is to help us be more like David, a man after your own heart. Lord, we know that there are times when we're going to communicate to you and we're going to make petitions to you that they will not be answered the way we want. Lord, help us like David to be able to accept that. Help us like David to be able to honor you in the midst of that. Help us like David to trust that your plan, that your will will always be better. And Lord, we pray in those moments when we feel like we are insignificant, when we feel like we have nothing worthwhile to offer the kingdom, help us to discover that there's always a part for us to play. Help us to never feel the need for glory and fame. Help us to only feel the need to bring you that glory. Help us, Lord, to be more like David. We love you, and it's through Jesus' name we pray.